today, rat lines. What's a rat line? The secret networks giving sanctuary to Nazis and Ustashi war criminals, and a look at the forces that have shaped some of America's most terrible recent events. My guest today is Peter Lavenda. Peter is a philosopher, a historian. He specializes in the interface between politics and religion and the occult. In the 1960s, for a very brief period of time, he was involved in the American Orthodox Catholic Church, which had served as a front for American intelligence operations and was later implicated in the assassination of JFK. He has higher degrees in religious studies and has written extensively about Eastern and Western spiritual and occult traditions and their interconnections with political and criminal events. Peter is a member of the American Academy of Religion and also TAC, the Religious Studies Honor Society, and um, is a charter member of the Norman Mailer Society. In addition to his scholarly pursuits, he is a veteran of over 25 years of working in different trades, and he is the author of The Mao of Business, and he's traveled extensively throughout the world. He's best known for his research and study about the Nazi occult beliefs. His book is Unholy Alliance, the history of the Nazi involvement in the occult, with a foreword by Norman Mailer. His tome, Sinister Forces, is also a monumental three-volume set that we'll touch upon uh, during our conversation. We have no one else here today because he has so much to share. Nice to have you with us today, Peter. Thank you. I'm glad, you have, uh, I'm glad to be on the show. Peter, before we dive into looking at the rat lines and the various fractions and individuals within the Catholic Church and finance and banks and corporate elites and American intelligence, such as Alan Dulles, who were instrumental in sustaining escape routes for the war criminals and the Nazis and scientists, I think it's important first to look at your first major study, Unholy Alliance, I feel it's important to set the stage and to define your rationale for why we should understand Nazism foremost as a religious cult, particularly among the most hardened ideologues, such as the SS, and a department most listeners will not have heard of, but it's extremely important for understanding deeper dimensions of Nazism. And that is a division of the SS called the Annenberg or something close to that. Sorry, I don't speak German. (laughs) So briefly, why should Nazism be viewed as a cult that adapted a political agenda rather than a political movement that happened to have certain religiously charged symbolisms and fractions involved in the occult? Well, that's that's a very good question, and it's one that's occupied me for so so many years. And I think we can... um, we can bring that down to a very basic uh, idea, and that that is that the 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 Nazi Party began uh, in the ashes of the First World War, and what you had at that time was a uh, conglomeration of movements that were occult movements, race racial movements, and occult movements that were uh, based around the idea of racial superiority but also uh, myths about the origins of the German people, the German race, and a kind of a, um, antagonism against 
um, Christianity and Judaism and the entire Judeo-Christian framework as having somehow betrayed the German people. So it went back much further than, than politics. It went back to really a bedrock religious spiritual concept. Okay. I have a second introductory question to ask you because you have a very different understanding when approaching conspiracy theories. Your take on what qualifies as a conspiracy or, or not departs radically from most authors of conspiratorial theories. And since we will be listening to you speak about many organizations and people appear and reappear either in the light or shadows of various events in American history, so much so that we are speaking about something other than mere chance or coincidence, would you briefly explain the modus operandi behind your research to seek synchronicities between people and events based upon the concept of synchronicity developed by um, the Nobel quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli and psychologist Carl Jung. And I know this would could be a complete program into itself. However, I feel it's important to summarize the idea of synchronicity as it applies to researching historical events and political and religious movements because it will provide us with a different way to observe and understand how certain horrific events in history occur and reoccur. I mean, we, we all have heard the saying that history repeats itself, but when we ask the question why and even question whether history does indeed repeat itself, few are giving us the answer we need, so there's no logical reason why it should. But if we can understand a deeper layer of forces that persist in national and global events, in the news, even if the players in those events are unconscious, we can then understand why Nazism remains with us. And we can better understand why the potential for horrendous experiments and mind control and mass indoctrination of people's um, intelligence, uh, all this uh, is worth looking at. So the form is yours. Take us through this discussion. Well, it's, um, it's going to be a little different from what people are used to. Uh, from my point of view, there's two major ways we look at assassinations. And we can take the Kennedy assassination as a perfect example. You have people who are firmly, firmly believe it was a conspiracy, and they point to a number of, of events, of personalities, of organizations they believe were connected or have influenced that that, that assassination in some way. On the other hand, you have the people, uh, many historians, who will look at some of these, the confluence of these events and people and organizations and say, well, it's only coincidence. It's not, it's not real. It's not actually happening. Uh, there is no actual connection. I believe there's a third way to approach this. And I think the third way is that there is a, a, a different way of looking at uh, reality itself. I think that with uh, the advent of, of, the fit of the kind of physics we have in the late 20th century, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, we're beginning to look at a non-Newtonian structure of the world. And can we, can we then apply that to our understanding of history, which occurs on a timeline? Uh, there's a linear time, which is we might call Newtonian time, but there may be a, a timeline which is quite different, which in which events take place uh, in different kinds of space or different kinds of time. I know it's a far out kind of concept to have, but it does explain a number of things that are otherwise inexplicable. Uh, for instance, there was a Belgian mystic, Maurice Maeterlinck. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in the beginning of the 20th century. 
he wrote a play. Uh, he wrote The Bluebird, which is his most famous production. They've made films out of it, and we have that term, Bluebird of Happiness, based on that. But there's also another uh, play that he wrote called The Cloud That Lifted, and it concerns an assassination. And it's an assassination of a political leader by someone who might have been working for Russia. We're not sure how many shots were actually fired. Some shots took place from a grassy knoll in front of the, in front of the assassinated political leader. And... There is a mystery as to why the person did it, what his motivations were, and the name of the protagonist is uh, Alec. Alec was the name of the man who fired the shots that killed the political leader. Now, this play was written before John Kennedy was even born. Uh, his uh, reputed assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was known as Alec in Russia. He was believed to have been operating uh, on behalf of the Russians when he was first apprehended. So all of these details fit. And yet they were created a uh, hundred years earlier. Okay. So this is what I think is gives you an idea that there are forces at work somehow, uh, which talk to us about the possibility that these things were seen ahead of time, or uh, or that there is a kind of a, of a template in which these political events keep taking place. All so right. when you have people like David Ferry, Jack Martin, and that whole New Orleans crowd. Um, who were allegedly involved in the assassination in some way. Jim Garrison thought so. And yet you have historians saying, no, there was never any connection. From my point of view, there is both a connection uh, and a non-connection. They, they did have an effect on the assassination. They were surrounded. Uh, they surrounded Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald himself was uh, surrounded by people who believed in mysticism, who believed in occultism, a group I call the Nine. Um, this is a documented relationship. Uh, the, the people he was staying with in, uh, in Texas, that Marina was staying with, uh, Ruth Payne, uh, was the, the daughter-in-law of Arthur Young, a famous inventor, famous uh, a scholar, a man who involved in the par in paranormal research. He had invented the Bell helicopter. Uh, and after this period, he's involved in, in mystical uh, practices. Uh, and he is visited only a few months before the assassination by Ruth Payne. Uh, she goes and visits him in Pennsylvania and then comes back, and Lee Harvey Oswald gets his job in the school book uh, depository, and the assassination takes place. Uh, all of these events are, are intimate, intimately connected, almost an incestuous relationship between a handful of people who seem to be all influencing each other. And yet if we wanted to take these people to court and try to prove a criminal conspiracy according to the laws of the land, we would not be able to. So from my point of view, you have to take a larger picture and you have to see how these things influence events, how, how sort of subterranean uh, influences can, can have their effect on political, political events and political actors. I appreciate that insight. About 20 years ago, there was an effort in New York to license only dietitians who would have the legal authority to charge a fee by giving any health advice. And no matter if you had a PhD or a master's in clinical nutrition from Harvard, you still couldn't do it. And so I was asked would I testify and, and uh, show why a dietitian, since I am a registered dietitian and I'm a PhD uh, in clinical nutrition and public health science, why the dietitian was not qualified the rank and file dietitian. And right after that, then I found out that this same identical law was being proposed 
in New Jersey. And then I found out after going into New Jersey, it was also being proposed in Connecticut. And then when I started to call around, it was being proposed everywhere. And almost all of them were waiting on just one state to ratify it, and then they were all going to use that. And I said at that time, this cannot be coincidence. You can have for decades no effort to qualify who should be licensed to give nutrition, and then all of a sudden everyone is licensing. <coughs> I said someone's behind this, but we couldn't prove it. And indeed, about half the states in the United States then had the dietitian's licensure. This last year, they did it again. Then you had to have mandatory vaccines, Gardasil, in New York and then New Jersey, and then mandatory vaccination of all healthcare workers in a state. Well, we fought these. And again, when we would ask legislators, how did you get this information that we need these vaccines? Because we did a series of article shows we didn't. Again, we couldn't make the connection. But we knew it couldn't be coincidence. You can't have all 50 states wanting to have mandatory Gardasil vaccine. Then all the schools in all the states, all the young girls had to have it. Then the young boys. Finally, an investigative reporter uncovered the people behind this is called ALEC. And it's a consortium of major corporations who meet secretly with state legislatures. And they've written and passed over 840 laws at the state level. All of those laws benefit their members, and anyone who then would challenge them finds it very difficult. But now that we don't have a smoking gun, we have a real bona fide case, then we began boycotting the corporations. So this is simply to suggest that what you're saying, uh, I see all the time. I look for those coincidences, you know, and, and then you pull them together. And then you can't have uh, these all happening at once in any given area, and yet when you do, you know there's a secret uh, method behind the scene. That's all I wanted to say on that. Now, well, that's what that's what Jim Garrison essentially said. He said, when you see these coincidences pile up, he said, look for look for an intelligence operation. You know, when these things start to happen this way, there has to be a spook behind it. There has to be some kind of an intelligence operation, an espionage agenda that's behind it that we can't see. And because we can't see it, we can't bring these people to court. We can't, we can't go to trial. We can't give evidence. We're, our hands are tied. Um, and so we have a skewed vision of reality, of history. Uh, it's, it's whatever we're told and whatever can be proven. Um, and I'm not suggesting we should believe everything that comes along, but we have to use some powers of discernment and you know, discrimination here to understand you know, what, what could really be taking place. But this is deep politics. Uh, in the case of Alec and in the case you know, of the Kennedy assassination as an example, there was a deep political agenda. And in the case of uh, the assassination, as you mentioned at the top of the program, I was involved with the very church that was serving as the front for David Ferry and Jack Martin. And I was only 17, 18 years old at the time, so I didn't really know what was going on until much later when I saw the name of the church being bandied about by the garrison people uh, and some of the investigations that were taking place. So, yeah, there was a lot. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot of classified documents, and every time they declassify another one, our vision of history has to change. Our point of view has to change. Our, our, our reality, our consensus reality, then undergoes another change. So well, it's well, like the fire sign theater. Everything you know is wrong. <laughs> you know? well, and this is, this is the situation where I find myself. One last thought from on this, and then I want to go into the rat lines and other issues. 
did you take the time to look at every single major mainstream journalist, official journalist, on the left and the right, not one believes in conspiracies, not one supports that vaccines are bad, not one agrees that JFK, RFK, or Martin Luther King were killed because of a conspiracy, but they all accept that the lone gunman, and they all continually denigrate the crazy conspiracy theorists. And even today, we track down the legitimacy of something that was going around the internet about internment camps. And finally, Alex Jones got a copy of a confidential memorandum that talked about these are going to be used for dissenters, political dissenters, and uh, for re-education. And now, how coincidence is it that you don't have Dan Rather, uh, you don't have Tom Brokaw, you don't have any of these people believing that there is anyone other than Lee Harvey Oswald or, or any of the other people, Sirhan Sirhan, involved in these assassinations. They don't believe in conspiracies. And whatever comes from official medicine, official science, official education, uh, official politics on their agenda, they accept without question and won't allow anyone else on to share their points of view, no matter how much scholarship they have. So I just wanted to share that with you. Now let's go to, so that tells me why I don't trust and believe anyone in a position of official authority. I don't care what the institution, if they're official, then they have power behind them that controls ultimately self-censorship or actual censorship of what they can and cannot do. And by the way, I've seen this on the left with censorship of freedom of speech because of what was being hidden. I've seen it repeatedly. Now, to the R issue. One of the more disturbing aspects of the rat lines is the Catholic Church's deep involvement in protecting Nazi criminals and the Ustashi from the Croatian fascists. Uh, who you'll need to define for uh, our listeners, and even managing the channeling of Nazi funds and gold and precious antiques like paintings and jewelry to safe harbors in South America and elsewhere. Priests such as uh, Dragdonovich uh, were not only uh, given money and engaged in money laundering, but also involved in the creation of false passports and travel documents. On the other hand, religious or cultic Nazism was staunchly anti-Catholic, even anti-Christian. So it's difficult to fathom why many in the church would continue to support some of the worst Nazi criminals, while those supporting Nuremberg were eager to round them up for trial. Explain to us what this is all about. Well, it goes to the heart of what we were just talking about as far as uh, the manipulation of reality is concerned by the powers that be. Um, the Catholic Church saw as its primary enemy not Nazism, but communism. This was the real enemy as far as they were concerned. They could accommodate the Nazis, and they did. They signed a concordat uh, with the Third Reich. Uh, that was Eugenio Pacelli, who later became Pius XII. Um, they, they cut deals with the Nazis. They did not become outspoken against the, uh, the Holocaust at all. They did, uh, there were individual Catholic priests. There were individual um, Catholic lay people who did their best to, to help people escape, to help the Jews escape in particular. But as far as the church as an institution is concerned, they turned a blind eye to this. So did many Western governments. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the famous uh, voyage of the damned, uh, you know, the, the, the shipload of Jewish people that went from from port to port to port and could not find anywhere to, to, to offload their passengers. So it wasn't just the question of the church, but the church should, as a moral institution, 
should have been on the front lines of protecting people from, from genocide, and they did not because of the fear of communism. So you had the Catholic Church afraid of communism. You had uh, people like Dulles and the American uh, government and the American military more afraid of communism and of Soviet Russia than they were of the Nazis. You had General Patton famously saying we had we had pointed our guns in the wrong direction and urging the president to allow him to invade the Soviet Union at the end of World War II. So you had this idea that communism represented actual satanic evil. And the church and the Nazis and the American and British intelligence establishments had to join forces and fight off the threat that was coming from the East, from the Soviet Union. You're correct. The Germans were, uh, especially the SS, was essentially pagan. There was a hatred of Judeo-Christianity among the elite of the Nazi party, and most particularly of the SS. Heinrich Himmler saw Judaism and Christianity both as the enemy. To him, Christianity was a degenerate Jewish sect anyway. So they all fell into the same bag. Uh, the SS documentation was published to show that words like Christmas and Easter and baptism could not be used in official SS documents. All of these holidays were being replaced by pagan holidays. The sacraments were being replaced by pagan sacraments. There's photographs of Nazi baptisms and Nazi wedding ceremonies. So there was a, a definite urge to replace all of Judeo-Christianity with German paganism. But until that could happen, uh, there, was, there were deals that were cut, very pragmatic deals between the Nazis and the church. And the church said, we have to protect the Nazis uh, because they understand about the Soviet Union. They understand about communism. They have networks not only in Europe but in South America and around the world of like-minded Catholics who are also violently anti-communist. We're going to form these alliances, these allegiances, and basically form this bulwark against communism, which would form the parameters of a Fourth Reich. And that's essentially what happened and what took place. And that was their motivation and their rationale for doing so. There were many, many pro-Nazi clergy in the Catholic Church. Draganovich, whom you mentioned, was the man who essentially created the rat line, most, most particularly the monastery route, as it was known, which was a, a series of safe houses and monasteries to move Nazis through Europe and into South America. You Peter, had Archie. Peter, hold you on had one a, second. Yes, Peter, yep. I need you to take us because you're so familiar with the material. The people yes. in the audience may not be. So please take us step by step. Let's first basics. How was it created? Where at the as the war was coming to an end, many people believe, as do I, that the forensic evidence on Hitler was uh, wrong. That because of dental X-rays that were later found, uh, that proved that. Uh, the skull that was later x-rayed wasn't Hitler's, but that's a separate issue. Talk about how many people they got out, who they got out, how these people ended up going to South America and other countries. And many of the scientists came to the United States. Werner von Braun created, brought over dozens and dozens of them, top German scientists. And, and how much money did they get out in gold and, and famous paintings that were never recovered and the, uh, the, the Jewish gold teeth that they were extracting at all the concentration camps that was, never un, that was never uncovered? So take us through that story in a little more detail. Take your time. Certainly. At the end of World War II, as the war was winding down in the last three, four or five months of the war, uh, many top German um, military people and people in the SS realized that the jig was up. Basically, the war was turning against them. 
they had already established networks overseas. They had established networks in Spain, for instance, for moving large quantities of gold and art objects and uh, jewelry out of Germany uh, into safe hands. Uh, Spain at that time was fascist. It was Franco's Spain. He was very pro-Nazi. Uh, he allowed the movement of these, this, this gold and this wealth to travel into Spain, and from Spain it would be put on boats uh, or U-boats in some cases and sailed for North America, South America, and even Asia, as I discovered in my research. So you had the initial uh, networks were of SS officers who were going to help each other to escape and to survive. They were already forging documents, forging papers, uh, forging uh, currency. A famous Nazi forger, Freddie Schwend, wound up in South America. He was a forger who was forging currency to destabilize the British pound and the American dollar. Um, so these people had uh, access to to forging documents and movement of people and money outside of Germany. Then the war ended. And at that point, we have a bizarre set of circumstances. We have a Catholic priest, a Monsignor, in Salzburg, Austria. Uh, Salzburg is where the uh, American Counterintelligence Corps, the CIC, had their headquarters for that region of Europe. They had just defeated Hitler. They had just defeated the Third Reich. And now they were tr tr trying to find Nazi war criminals to prosecute them uh, for Nuremberg. So they were on the way to do this. And this, this priest... Uh, who was a Croatian priest, a Nazi priest. He was a member of the Ustashi. The Ustashi was a fascist government uh, of Croatia, which was very pro-Nazi, very anti-Semitic. Um, they set up their own concentration camps. They persecuted Serbian Orthodox, massacred many of them. Uh, they put Catholic priests in charge of some of these camps. For instance, Jasonovic concentration camp in Yugoslavia uh, was set up by Catholics. I mean, there were Franciscan priests who were in charge of that. So you had this very strong Catholic uh, pro-Nazi presence in Croatia. As Croatia fell to the Russians, to the communists as they were coming in, and the British, uh, people like Draganovic, this Catholic Monsignor, went to Austria. He helped the entire government in exile of Croatia, all these pro-Nazi people, to escape to South America. He, he started the rat line. He did this by providing false papers issued by the Catholic Church. As the war ended and as the hunt for Nazis to prosecute them changed into the hunt for Nazis to hire them against Russia and against the Soviet Union, Draganovich's uh, abilities and his connections became extremely popular with the Allied forces, most particularly the British. The rat line then became a way of helping the Nazis to escape. He did this by cooperating with a number of high-ranking Catholic Church officials in Rome. One of these was Bishop Hudal. Bishop Hudal was a man who wrote uh, a book praising National Socialism called The Foundations of National Socialism. He autographed a copy for, for uh, Hitler himself. He was a man who was an unapologetic anti-Semite, and unapologetic Nazi. Archbishop Sarek of uh, Yugoslavia, unapologetic Nazi as well. Archbishop Stepanac, who's been beatified uh, by, pope, uh, by the last pope, is uh, on his way to becoming a saint, and yet he 
helped he helped the uh, Nazis to hide gold and to hide their resources in his cathedrals. He helped some of the Nazis to escape. So you have a very, very strange relationship uh, between the church and the Nazis. And some of the people who used the rat line to escape include Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, who wound up in uh, Bolivia. It included Josef Mengele. Uh, it included uh, Franz Stangl, who was the, the commandant of the Treblinka concentration camp. All of these people fled with Vatican paperwork and Red Cross documentation arranged by this Monsignor in Salzburg, Austria, Krunoslav Draganovich. How about Martin Bormann, Adolf Hitler's personal assistant and a very powerful person within the Nazi uh, regime and party? Well, this, this is a case that probably points up better than almost any other what was really going on. Because most, most regular historians, most mainstream historians you'll talk to say that Martin Bormann never escaped. He died in Berlin in the uh, first couple of days of May 1945 and that they found his body. Um, the story, however, is a bit stranger than that. They found Martin Bormann's body a number of times. And it was always proven not to be Martin Bormann. The last skull they found, which was definitively proven to be Martin Bormann, contained red clay. And the red clay is not found in Berlin. It's found in Paraguay, this particular type of clay. So Bormann did die eventually. And it appears as if his skull, at least if not his entire body, was reburied in Berlin and then found miraculously short, shortly thereafter and then proven to have been Bormann. Um, an author called Paul Manning, a man who worked for Edward R. Morrow, a very well-respected journalist who had covered the, um, the surrender of the Nazis in, and as well as the surrender of the Japanese, a man with impeccable credentials, wrote a book about Martin Bormann, the Nazi in exile, in which he proved that Bormann had escaped. And he used financial records to prove this. He used uh, eyewitness testimony. He used all sorts of interviews and did what a journalist is supposed to do and came up with the story that Borman had actually escaped. That book was not published. Every single publisher turned it down until Lyle Stewart, the crusading publisher out of uh, New Jersey, decided he would publish it, and he did, and then his legs were broken shortly thereafter. And Paul Manning's son was killed. So there's, there's a lot of mystery surrounding the escape of Martin Borman, and I happen to believe that Borman did escape. I think there's a lot of very suggestive evidence to show that. I think the Argentine immigration records show that Borman did escape. So I think we'll, we'll hear more about this story as the years go on. So we're talking about thousands of individuals managed to get out of Germany. Yes, yes, exactly, thousands. Okay. All right, and ended up in Latin America where they had a lot of influence down there. Now, one topic that will surprise many in the, is the close relationship between the Muslim community in Palestine and Hitler and his government, and in particular the relationship between Hitler and the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And even today, Hitler's treatise, Mein Kampf, and books on Nazism are popular in many developing countries, including Arab and other Muslim nations. And again, this seems like a strange relationship since Arabs are Semitic and therefore, according to Nazi cult, it would be poison blood that needs to be eradicated from the earth, similar to the Jews, if you were a Nazi. So share with us this strange Nazi Middle East relationship. And do you find any correlation between Nazism and uh, some of the Muslim terrorist ideologies? 
Well, to me, it's a fascinating subject because it goes to the heart of some of the ideological similarities and differences. When we talk about um, the the Muslim uh, the Muslim movement today, we have to remember that all of these problems started with World War One. And I make a point uh, in a lot of my writings that we're still fighting World War One. That I believe the 20th century will be considered the the second 100 years war. I think that we haven't really gotten out of that yet. And the problems that we're facing today with Israel, Palestine, and the entire Middle East, Iraq, Egypt, Syria, the the whole ball of wax, goes back to mistakes that were made right at the end of World War One. The Arabs felt that the British were on their side. We're going to help them throw off the yoke of the Ottoman Empire, get rid of the Turks in the Middle East. And once they had done that, they would have their liberty and their freedom. Well, the British made a lot of promises, and the French made a number of promises. Um, and these promises were a bit like the treaties made with the Native Americans. Uh, you would sign a treaty, and then you would break it. And these treaties were broken consistently. Uh, the Arab revolt was betrayed in some cases. Uh, and even betrayed by the people who had helped to lead the Arab revolt. Uh, I think many many people don't realize that the, the boundaries of the Middle East that we deal with today, the countries we deal with today, those boundaries were drawn by T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and Gertrude Bell, the famous archaeologist. Lawrence and Bell were both archaeologists, and they were both instrumental in pulling out the map of the Middle East and drawing the boundaries where these new countries should be created. It was a, a bit of a betrayal. It was a kind of resurgence of, of colonialism, if you will, because after the Turks were gotten rid of, the British and the French decided to carve up the territory between them. Uh, the modern-day country of Iraq, Kuwait, uh, Syria, Saudi Arabia, all of these countries were essentially created at the end of World War I by the Allies. So you have this, 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 this sense that suddenly the Arabs realized that they were not going to get what they thought they were going to get. And a man called al-Husseini, who became the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, was very much in the forefront of an anti-colonialist movement in the Middle East to get rid of the British, to get rid of all the foreign powers, and to create a, an Arab homeland there. Uh, he had the, the problem, of course, that there had been a Balfour Declaration in which a state of Israel was promised. So now suddenly all of these weird stories that Hitler used to believe in, uh, he did believe to the end of his days, of a, of a Jewish conspiracy, suddenly became real in the minds of the Arabs living in the Middle East. Now there is a Jewish conspiracy, and it's a conspiracy of bankers and of European governments uh, to create this homeland and to carve up the Middle East. Real or imagined, the effect was genuine. So now you had the Mufti saying, well, to Hitler, as Hitler came to power in the 1930s, he's saying to Hitler, well, you're anti-Semitic, you're against the Jews, and so are we. We have something in common. Let's both cooperate, get rid of the Jews. If you promise us we're going to have our, our homeland to ourselves, we will help you if you help us. It was a, a pact with the devil, in a sense, but they saw in Hitler a kindred spirit. They saw in the Nazis, because of the Holocaust, because of their anti-Semitism, they felt that the Nazis and the, the most radical of the Muslim organizations uh, in the Middle East had common cause. So this common cause was made. And the, and the Grand Mufti, al-Husseini, went on to create an SS division, the SS Hanshar division, which was composed of Bosnian Muslims who were, there, who were going to assist the Nazis in the war in Europe, in the Balkans, and then bring, hopefully, 
the Nazis to the Middle East to get rid of the, the problem of Israel once and for all. So this is where that relationship was born. It's not as simplistic as many people would like to think that it's just based on anti-Semitism or a hatred of Judaism. There's definitely that as a, as a major factor. But it's a bit of a smokescreen. There's also the idea that uh, Germany, uh, well, France and England and America were colonial powers, and they were conspiring against the Arab people. So they used the anti-Semitic uh, idea as a motivating factor for, for uh, inflaming huge numbers of the population against uh, Europe because of its perceived alliance and allegiance with Judaism and with the Jews, with Zionism in general. So this, this, this persisted. It, it wasn't only the Grand Mufti. It was also the Indian National Movement under Supas Chandra Bose was also very pro-Nazi. They also felt that Hitler would liberate India from the British. So they were throwing their lot in with the Nazis as well. Uh, Supas Chandra Bose, a very famous Indian nationalist leader, was in Berlin at the end of the war, as was al Husseini, the Grand Mufti, who they all had to escape at the end to avoid the, the Allied, uh, void Allied capture. But this is an idea of, of how complicated that was, that situation was, and how we're still dealing with the fallout today. Appreciate that. Thank you. I want to move to some other topics closer to the United States and after the Second World War, because when we read the news today, particularly concerning American foreign policy, the war on terror and recent bills and executive orders that are eroding citizen rights and democracy, none of which the left or right are dealing with. You don't hear a single person. You don't you won't hear Sean Hannity. Uh, or Laura Ingram, or Laura Schlesinger, or Art L L uh, uh, Mark Levine, uh, Michael Savage on the right. You, you won't hear uh, Rachel Maddow go out after Obama and show the consequences of a conspiracy to take away our personal rights. They may offer some slight criticism, but you will not see them going after this. No matter how many times he uh, says one thing and does the opposite, they still say, well, okay, so he made a mistake, but next time he won't because he won't be beholding. Uh, he can do what he wants. Wrong. So today we have massive erosion of our civil rights. We are no longer democracy by any measure, and only people who are outside of the official position will recognize this. You ask the average American, is there any conspiracies in America? No. But these are people who are official Americans, living an official life. They, there's no challenge to them. They're not going to protest anything unless their favorite television programs gets canceled. So we find their precedents in past secret programs and projects behind our intelligence agency in the White House cabinets. But before we do, we have also researched the evidence surrounding the common held belief that Hitler and Eva Braun committed suicide in the bunker as the Allies were descending upon Berlin. But you have also found numerous discrepancies to seriously challenge this and perhaps even to suggest the propaganda behind Hitler's death may have just been a way to close the door on the Nazi phenomenon in Europe and move uh, forward for the growing Soviet threat. For example, there's Hitler and Brahms' dental records, the Soviet activity surrounding the movement of their corpses, the DNA samples of Hitler's skull fragment, finally taken in 2009, the background of Hitler's doubles, 
no, most people don't realize that, like Saddam Hussein, he had many different doubles that were used after an earlier attempt on his life in the Valkyrie episode. His health condition, which was kept highly secret from the German people in the media and other evidence that indicates that both Hitler and Brahm did escape. And already we've seen that the rat lines, and, and it would not be too much time on this since you have written extensively on it already, and we've talked about it, but share with us a few of the main pieces of evidence and contradictions that give us serious reason to believe that Adolf Hitler and Eva Brahm did not commit suicide in the bunker. Well, this goes to, to the heart of what everything we've been talking about, the manipulation of reality uh, by, by the people in charge, by the powers that be. I grew up believing without a shred of doubt that Hitler died in the bunker, committed suicide on April 30th. I believe that for so long that I made it a, uh, an, an issue in my first book on Holy Alliance, in which I point out that April 30th, the day Hitler committed suicide, is a famous pagan holiday in Germany. And I thought that had resonance. So I, I wrote about that. And I was invested in that story like most historians. And then I came across evidence that maybe this wasn't the case. Uh, Nick Bellantoni, the state archaeologist of Connecticut, had gone to Russia to examine the skull the, the, the Russians had, claiming it was Hitler's skull. And it sure enough is a skull with a bullet hole in it. Um, but it's not a skull of a male. And it's not Hava Braun's skull. They did some genetic or some, uh, yeah, some genetic forensic testing back in Connecticut with a piece of that skull and proved beyond any doubt that there is no forensic evidence to show that Hitler died in the bunker or died at all, for that matter. There's no forensic evidence. The eyewitness testimony uh, that was collected by the British, in particular, Hugh Trevor Roper, famous British historian, um, a man who was working for MI6 for British intelligence at the time was told by British intelligence, you have to come up with the, with the story, with the proof that Hitler committed suicide in the bunker. This is your mission. You've got three months to do this. We know you don't speak German. You won't have access to the Soviet uh, prisoners, to the, to the Nazis in Soviet custody. You probably won't have access to the Nazis in American custody, but you can talk to the ones we have and come up with the story. That mission, that intelligence mission, and that's what it was. It was an MI6 intelligence mission, it was called Operation Nursery, which I think is one of the most cynical things uh, coming out of British intelligence, which has a history of cynical things. But Operation Nursery meant that we were going to tell the children a fairy tale, and that's really what it turned out to be. At the same time, on the Soviet side, Stalin believes 100% that Hitler is still alive. He's being protected by the Allies who are going to use him against the Soviet Union in some way later. So he wants proof that Hitler is dead. So he has Soviet intelligence digging up bodies left and right, uh, digging them up, reburying them, digging them up, reburying them. It's, it's, it's a bizarre story, which is covered in my book. You'll, you'll see all the documentation is there. And um, they called this operation Operation Myth. So we have nursery and we have myth. We have nothing but fairy tales surrounding the story of the death of Hitler and Eva Braun. The dental records, which are so important in this case, uh, were based not on actual dental records. They were based on dentures. They were based on artificial teeth that were created by Hitler's dentist, who had created two copies, two sets of each, one for Hitler, one set for Hitler, and one set for Eva Braun. The corpses that eventually the Soviets found that had the dentures in them were obviously not the corpses of Hitler and Eva Braun. The dentures did not fit. 
They were loosely inserted into the skulls of the two bodies. Uh, in Hitler's case, the body was charred, so it was unrecognizable. In Ava Braun's case, the same thing, except that in Ava Braun's case, the body had shrapnel wounds. How does a dead body get shrapnel wounds? It's physically impossible. You cannot hemorrhage blood. No, no dead body can bleed. And yet Ava Braun's body obviously had been riddled with shrapnel. Um, there were so many inconsistencies in these stories that I went back and I reread everything, and I found out that the only proof anyone had Hitler and Eva had committed suicide were SS officers and their testimony. It was a testimony of people who were trained to lie, who were loyal to their Fuhrer, uh, who had told completely different stories depending on who was asking them. They told different stories to the Soviets, different stories to the Americans, different stories to the British. Nothing matched. They changed their stories from time to time. Sometimes he committed suicide by using a pistol. Sometimes it was cyanide. Sometimes it was both. Uh, sometimes he had a wound on the side of his head. Sometimes his whole head was blown off. On and on and on and on. There, there's, so much, there's so much ridiculous information about the hitler Everbron suicides, we cannot take them seriously. Well, that opens up a whole lot of ideas. Where did they go? Now, why is this important? Because in the early 70s, I wrote a book called the, uh, the uh, it was originally called A Jew in the Palace of the Tsars, later uh, changed to The Conspirator Who Saved the Romanovs. And I spent a long time talking with very credible people, including a member of parliament, um, who had information. I interviewed the white Russians, including the remaining royal family members um, who were old at that time, but still alive in the United States, Maria Kapokin and others. And it was clear from the evidence that the czar was the wealthiest man in the world when he died, and yet no one ever laid claim to his inheritance. Now, he had the gold mines, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, palaces, Arskacello, and, um, and yet, and he had enormous investments in the United States in major companies, startup companies that later became Fortune 500 companies. You think with a mother alive and uh, a brother and a sister that they wouldn't have laid claim to that money in a heartbeat. Well, no one did. Why? Because he was still alive. And then I managed to interview the head of Polish intelligence uh, who defected, and in his defection told the um, CIA, uh, Nicholas um, Paparach, that uh, he was the son of the czar. And when he took a front, uh, when he took a lie detector test, uh, it showed that it was incomplete. And the reason it was because the czar had two sons. The first one died. This was the second son, and it wasn't the czar's son. It was the czarina's son with a person that she'd had an affair with, a navy captain. So all this stuff came out. I and and I did this book, and uh, through a diary that had uh, been given to me by the niece of Aaron Simonovich. Very interesting. Uh, but then I said, well, where did they live? And how did they uh, keep from being found out? And it was all about the connections and the different aristocracies, the amount of money involved, and the need to keep them uh, quiet. So anyhow, if someone told me they had proof that the bodies of Hitler and Eva Braun weren't, weren't a proof, then the question is, where did they go? 
and how could someone like Hitler stay out since he was a, a psychopath uh, and a megalomaniac? How could he keep from announcing himself or doing something? Your thoughts on that? Well, this is what propelled me to study this story because I was researching another book uh, called Tantric Temples. I was in Indonesia at the time. And as I was researching that material, um, people came up to me because they knew about Unholy Alliance. And they said, have you heard the story about Hitler having escaped to an island in Indonesia? And of course, I laughed because it's ridiculous. Uh, everybody knows he committed suicide in April 30th and 45. And all those Hitler sightings are just like Elvis sightings. You know, why pay attention? And then they showed me some newspaper articles that had magazine articles, rather, that had been published in the 1980s, in 1983, by an Indonesian who was a doctor. And he claimed that on a remote island, the island of Sumbawa, which is east of Bali, uh, east of Lombok, I mean, it's really far out there towards where the Komodo dragons are on Flores Island. Um, he came across a, a, an elderly European man. Uh, he didn't think much of it. It was very strange to find him there working as a doctor in this very primitive circumstances. Uh, thought no more of, of it back in 1960. And then when he saw uh, an article written by one of Hitler's SS officers who wrote about his, uh, his experience of the Third Reich, the doctor realized that the physical description of Hitler pretty much matched the description of the doctor he saw on that remote island. Well, still, it's a stretch, and I didn't want to pay too much attention to the story. It's a case of mistaken identity until I saw excerpts from the old German doctor's diary, which was published, which contained the name that we talked about at the beginning, Draganovich. Here was a diary that was written by a man who died in 1970. So the writings had to take place in the 1950s or 1940s, as it turned out, the late 1940s. And it references Draganovich. It references the, uh, the addresses, the actual physical addresses of some of the houses in the rat line of the monastery route. They're very specific addresses, including a few others that no one had known about. And that made me pay attention. I said to myself, if this, is, this could be Hitler, but if it's not Hitler, it has to be a very notorious Nazi for him to have gone all the way around the world and picked the most remote, remote island he could find in a Muslim country to hide out. I mean, Mengele stayed in South America, Barbie stayed, Walter Rauf, Franz Stangl, everybody wound up in South America. All the most notorious uh, murderers, mass murderers of the Third Reich wound up in South America. Why would this man feel it was not safe to be in South America? Why did he feel he was only safe if he was surrounded by a couple hundred million Muslims in a tropical country on the other side of the world? And that led me on my on my quest to find out who was this man, uh, where did he get his documentation, what was his background, what was his history, and it just added, it raised more questions than answers. And what did you find? Well, I went to, his, uh, to the cemetery where he was buried. He died in January of 1970. That's a very important uh, date to remember. Because January of 1970, late January, is when he died in Indonesia of what appears to be a heart attack. In April, early April of 1970, the KGB suddenly gets orders from Yuri Andropov, then the head of the KGB, to dig up their body, their Hitler body from their 
burial ground, which was in Magdeburg in East Germany at a KGB headquarters, to dig up Hitler's body and destroy it once and for all. The, the, the coincidence, as we talked about, of these dates, of these things happening within uh, eight weeks of each other in 1970, of this elderly man dying in Indonesia, and then suddenly the KGB, for no reason we can understand, decides it's important to dig deep in the ground, exhume a body which at this point had turned into gelatin, as, as the KGB officers recounted it, to dig up this body and then cremate it again, and destroy the ashes and scatter them into the river. Why was the urgency? Why suddenly did they have to do this after this man died in 1970? So my feeling at this point is somebody felt it was a very good chance that the man who died in Indonesia was actually Adolf Hitler. The Soviets might have believed it at the time. Other people may have believed it. J. Edgar Hoover kept files on, Nazi, on Hitler sightings in South America for, for decades after the end of the war. And some of these sightings are kind of credible, and they fit in with the story that I uncovered, that these, this man and his wife, these two strange individuals, used the rat line, used Dragunovich's connections, got to South America, went to Argentina, and shortly after Argentina, they got on another boat and they wound up in Indonesia. Alone, of all the other Nazis, they felt it was necessary for them to flee as far away as possible. And, you know, they might have been right. In 1960, the Israelis captured Adolf Eichmann. Uh, they extradited Klaus Barbie. They've tried to extradite others. But Indonesia, no one had extradition with Indonesia, uh, especially under Sukarno and later under Suharto. Uh, if that was Hitler, he was safe. If it wasn't Hitler, it had to have been a major Nazi war criminal. And this is what I'm still in the process of discovering. I want the Indonesian government to exhume the body. I don't believe they will. It's not a, it's not a, a, a winning uh, solution for them. Uh, if it turns out it is Hitler, it's going to raise a lot of questions. So I think they're going to keep the body right where it is. But I've amassed enough circumstantial evidence to suggest very strongly that whoever is buried in that grave in Surabaya, Indonesia, could very well be the, the former leader of the Third Reich. All right. There are many other topics I'd like to discuss. And for those listening, we're coming up to the end of the hour in a minute. But I'm going to ask you, uh, Peter, if you could stay so we can get through Operation Paperclip, the creation of our rocketry and space program by bringing Nazi scientists and the occult with um, uh, Alistair Crawley, uh, involvement of one of America's most famous rocket scientists, Jack Parsons, mentored by Alistair Crawley, and, and who had a close involvement with Ron L. Hubbard, who uh, later took Parsons' wife, and then Jack who later committed suicide in our space medical program, Nazi scientists, and Operation Bluebird, and Operation Artichoke, and MK Ultra, and America's mind-controlled experiments, because rarely do we have people who know anything about this. And, uh, and I remember being the first person to interview Robert Blair, Blair Kaiser when I did a program for intellects. It was not a health program, and it was called Writer's Forum. And that was my first radio program. And he had just written a book in 1970 called Sirhan, or, or RFK Must Die. And uh, he claimed that Sirhan Sirhan was uh, recruited, brainwashed, uh, because under hypnosis, he kept saying, uh, pay the order of Sirhan Sirhan, blank, 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 blank. Pay the order of Sirhan Sirhan, blank, 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 blank. As if someone had told him, you'll be paid a certain amount of money 
for participating in this. And also, I want to go further into Leah Harvey Oswald and others that you believe were involved in the JFK assassination. I've done 67 programs on the JFK assassination. I've written extensively wow. on it. And also, Richard Nixon's rise to power and Jim Jones and the People's Temple. There's a connection there. Ronald Reagan, Pat Robertson's real agenda, uh, the Process Church, which I investigated, uh, the Final Judgment, uh, the Son of Sam. A lot of things. Do you have time to stick around and we'll do another segment? I certainly do. I'd be happy to. We're going to go to music. And uh, for those of you who are going to say goodbye, we thank you for listening. I'm Gary Knoll. My guest is Peter Lavenda, L-E-V-E-N-D-A. And uh, he is here to talk about rat lines, but he's now going to talk about a whole lot more. We'll take a 60-second break, theme music, and come back. With us, everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. Continuing with a story on rat lines, the secret networks giving sanctuary to thousands of high-ranking Nazi scientists and aristocrats and uh, Ustashi war criminals, is my guest, historian, philosopher, um, Peter Lavenda. Now, Peter has written extensively on all this. His latest work is called Ratline Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. And let's pick up here. There have been so many real conspiracies. The American public uh, is not aware of how extensive they are. But let's start and go through them. I'm going to start and, and ask you to first tell us about all the Nazis, the war criminals that ended up coming to the United States and were instrumental in our own our rocket program, our space program, and our intelligence programs. Yes, this is a story that has disturbed me greatly when I first understood it because there was a real failure of our of of moral leadership. I think at a certain point when this took place, Operation Paperclip, as I think many people know, was a military program designed to take Nazi rocket scientists and other types of scientists, other engineers, out of Germany, out of Europe, and bring them to the United States to work for us. Uh, it, it was a two-pronged effort. The first thing was to bring them to the United States so they would work for us, but also to keep them out of the hands of the Soviet Union uh, because we didn't want the Russians to have the same technology. So we brought over people who were war criminals. There's no other way to describe it. The SS was considered a criminal organization by the Allies. So anyone who was wearing an SS uniform would be arrested. Uh, this is different from a German soldier. Uh, somebody who belonged to the Wehrmacht would not necessarily be arrested. But someone who belonged to the SS was automatically a criminal. Well, Werner von Braun was, was a major in the SS. He had, we know his background. We know his dossier. You don't become a major in the SS uh, by just paying your dues every year or something. Uh, you get these, you get these, uh, the high ranks because you're performing a service for the SS. Uh, Werner von Braun was a, was a major in the SS. His boss, Walter Dornberger, uh, a general uh, who was in charge of the the rocket programs at Pinamunda, was was a war criminal. There's no other word for it. He used slave labor. People were killed. People were starved to death uh, in the in the caverns in the caves where they were building the rockets, the the famous V ones and V twos. All of this was taking place with slave labor, Jewish labor. Uh, people were murdered in the process of building these rockets. And yet we brought these people over to work for us at the end of the war. I think 
many people don't realize that the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, did not exist at the end of the war. Uh, there was no such thing as NASA for at least a decade after the war. So the rocket scientists were working for the U.S. Army at that time. This was a military operation. The rockets were not being designed to go to the moon. They were being designed uh, to be used as offensive weapons. So we bring the Nazis over. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of scientists, not only rocket scientists, aviation medical specialists. So we had doctors coming over, people who had done horrendous experiments on living human beings in the camps at places like Dachau, where ex who they were experimenting with low pressure, high pressure, with intense cold, with all sorts of environmental tests on living human beings. Uh, they were testing uh, certain types of medicines to see how much a human being could take by a direct, a direct wound. You would shoot a living human being and then apply these medicines to see if it would coagulate the blood in the wound quickly or not. All sorts of horrible things. These doctors were brought again to the United States. Uh, they were set up at Randolph Air Force Base in Texas. Uh, Hubertus Strugholt was the Nazi in charge of that operation. So we brought these people over to work with us. This was in direct violation of an order by Harry Truman not to do that, not to bring over anybody who had a Nazi record, who, had, who was a known war criminal. He refused to hire people like this or to save them from the Nuremberg tribunals. But the army ignored him. And they, they sanitized the documents, the dossiers, the files and records of people like Werner von Braun, Dornberger, Strughold, and all the others in order to bring them over to work for us. This was a deal with the devil. This is where we were in danger of losing our soul by making a pact with people who, been, who, who were guilty of some horrendous, hideous war crimes. We brought them over to work with us to build our rockets. And don't for a second think that the Nazis were grateful to us, and they had suddenly become flag-waving uh, American citizens because they were not. They were stealing our secrets and sending them to their, their, their co-workers, their colleagues, who at that point were in Soviet hands, in Soviet captivity. They were sabotaging the rocket program. We at one point sent a rocket into Mexico. It blew up right outside the city of Juarez you know, because of a so-called failure, uh, mechanical failure. There was all sorts of stuff going on in the late 1940s, early 1950s uh, with the Nazis and with their, their, their supposed working and cooperation with our military. So that was one major problem. The other major problem, of course, was the Galen organization. And the Galen organization was basically the CIA's counter-Soviet uh, operation, their networks against the Soviet Union, were almost entirely created by a Nazi intelligence officer, Reinhard Galen, who had convinced the CIA that he had the networks necessary to fight Soviet communism. So what happened was the CIA's entire anti-Soviet operations in the early days of the CIA was composed entirely of former Nazis. So we had the Nazis in Europe working against the Russians. We had Nazis in the United States working in our rocket programs and our medical research. Uh, basically, American science was Nazi science for a while, and American intelligence operations were Nazi intelligence operations. All right. Now let's go from Operation Paperclip to the strange case of uh, Jack Parsons, mentored by Aleister Crowley. And I think you have to explain who Aleister Crowley is, who had a close involvement with Ron L. Hubbard, who founded Scientology, and who later took Parsons' wife, and then Jack, who later committed suicide, and our 
space medical program. All right, put all that together. <laughs> well, it's a it's a it's a bizarre story. Uh, you're you're right about that. Let's start with uh, who was Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley was a British magician. Uh, he was an occultist. He was someone who had uh, believed that he had founded and created a new religion, uh, a religion of do what thou wilt, called Thelema. He was a practicing magician his entire life. He had been addicted to drugs for long periods of his life. He was uh, a poet as well, a mountain climber. He had a lot of uh, different types of stuff on his resume. But for our purposes, he had two important functions. One was as the occultist and as the leader of something called the Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO, uh, an occult organization that still exists to this day. His other interest for us was that he worked for a while uh, for British intelligence during World War II. This is the connection back to our original story. And he was a friend of people like Ian Fleming uh, and Dennis Wheatley, people who were authors. They, uh, Dennis Wheatley wrote occult novels. Ian Fleming, as we know, wrote the James Bond uh, stories, the James Bond novels. They had hired Aleister Crowley to help them figure out what German occultists were telling Hitler, Rudolf Hess, Himmler, and all the others. So Crowley was working for British intelligence during World War II. But at the same time, he had uh, overseed the operations of the occult lodges around the world who were loyal to him, including a cult lodge in California, the only occult lodge, uh, really operating lodge in the United States at that time. And it was run by a man called Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was a rocket scientist, literally. There's a crater on the moon named after Jack Parsons. He's one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, he worked during the war in developing certain types of fuel to be used on board ship so that they could fire rockets uh, from shipboard without the fuel degrading on board ship over long periods of time. So he made a lot of contributions to the war effort. But he was also a member of the secret society of this occult lodge. Well, L. Ron Hubbard, was in the Navy during World War II in the Pacific. Uh, he managed to get himself on a medical discharge, and in 1945-46, he started to befriend Jack Parsons. Hubbard believed himself to be an up-and-coming science fiction author, so he hung out with other science fiction authors in Pasadena. And this is where the Occult Lodge was headquartered uh, that was run by Jack Parsons, the rocket scientist. So Hubbard and Jack Parsons formed a friendship. They started conducting rituals out in the desert in California, trying to summon angels, demons, and that sort of thing. Uh, Jack Parsons considered himself the Antichrist. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard was his partner in these rituals. At one point, uh, Hubbard steals Jack Parsons' wife, takes her to Miami, takes Parsons' money to Miami to buy a boat. Uh, that they were going to be joint ventures in. But, of course, Hubbard disappeared with that. Hubbard was already married to another woman, so Hubbard had committed bigamy at the time. Um, so he used the information he got from Parsons, the ritual background, the Aleister Crowley material, all of the occult material, and used that to help found his organization, Scientology. And in his earliest lectures to Scientologists in the 1950s, he praised Aleister Crowley, a man that the British tabloid press had called the wickedest man in the world. L. Ron Hubbard was praising him in speeches, saying that he loved Crowley, that he learned a lot from Crowley. He even claimed that he met Crowley, which would have been impossible. Crowley died in 1947. But at any rate, Hubbard made a lot of claims like that and claimed that uh, basically, you know, occultism, Western-style occultism with 
Kabbalah, with uh, the tarot, with rituals of magic. All of this contributed to the birth and the development of what would become later Scientology. Hmm. Interesting. We're going to segue to Robert F. Kennedy's assassination, because just last week, a woman, I believe she's 79, who was right beside RFK when he was shot, stated that she had to come forward now, before she dies, and tell the world that there were 12 to 14 shots, not eight shots. And she said that she had told the FBI there were 12 to 14 shots, and they refused to accept what she was saying, because if they accepted there were 12 to 14 shots, and there had to be more than one killer. And all the evidence where the door frame went missing, and, and, but this was just last week. Tell us about RFK's assassination, Sirhan Sirhan, and who you believe was behind it, and what evidence do you have to support your belief? Very good. Uh, the, the RFK assassination to me is probably the touchstone for everything that's gone on since then. I think we all talk about the JFK assassination, and of course it's extremely important, and the, the cast of characters around the JFK assassination merits a lot of really close attention, particularly what was going on in New Orleans, particularly the Ruth Payne-Arthur Young connection and all of that. It's a whole story. But the Kennedy, the Bobby Kennedy assassination is, a, is something else again, because here we have Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian, a Christian Palestinian, by the way, not a Muslim, who is studying theosophy. He's studying Rosicrucianism. Uh, his diaries, which I've read, contain numerous references to occult and hermetic ideas. And he would go and become hypnotized uh, by the sort of uh, nightclub hypnotists. Uh, he was fascinated by hypnosis. He, because of his occult connections, um, because of his uh, interest in hypnosis and all of that, I took a very close interest in the case of Sirhan Sirhan. Um, what you said is exactly right. He kept on talking about uh, pay to the order of, pay to the order of, on and on and on. I believe, and I think they're trying to reopen the case now, that Sirhan Sirhan was a mind-controlled assassin. I think, and as, as outrageous as this sounds, and I realize that there's a lot of credibility at stake when you make claims like this, when you use the word mind control, you're put into a box of, you know, of, of kooks. But, you know, there's an enormous document, uh, literary documentation on, on the subject of mind control, particularly CIA mind control, but also military. It's there. Uh, some documents have been declassified. We know it existed. And we know the goal of the mind control programs was to create a programmed assassin who would not remember why they had committed the assassination or who had told them to commit the assassination. We know that this existed. We know that these programs did. And in Sirhan's case, we have a connection to hypnotists who worked for the CIA who were around him at the time. So I believe that he, he claimed he never denied he committed the assassination. He said, I must have because that's what you're telling me. But he had no memory of it. He never denied that he committed it. He just didn't know why he had done it or what had motivated him. He had no memory of the act itself. So I believe that Sirhan was controlled. 
I believe that the the evidence that's coming out now, not only the woman who just recently came out, but the evidence going back all the way back to '68 and to into that period, I think shows that there were more than one more than one shot, more than one assassins, more than two guns, more than one gun was involved. Rather, at least two guns were involved. Um, the bullets were all over the place. Uh, they could not have been all over the place with Sirhan being that close to to Bobby and firing directly at him. There's a lot of unanswered questions where that's concerned. I think that if we just sit back for a second and think to ourselves, John F. Kennedy assassinated, Bobby Kennedy assassinated, Martin Luther King assassinated. If we just take those, those few assassins in five years of all people on one side of the political spectrum all being murdered, you can't really come away with that and say it's coincidence. You know, it's just it, well, it, let, let me share one thought here. Yes, because I've spent thousands of hours. In fact, uh, a real uh, uh, well, I don't I, he didn't give me permission to use his name, so I won't. But a person who is a real scholar on this, he and I went down to Daly Plaza because we submitted the Zapruder tape to an infrared scan and found that there were tracer lines. And then when we went down and we did a, uh, a look to where those tracer lines went and matched them, there were four shooters. And uh, so when people said they saw, you know, a grassy knoll and they saw a guy behind the fence and they heard uh, 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 they smelt the smoke of a gun being after being fired and they were telling the truth. And the problem is that the magic bullet, there was more of a bullet that ended up in Governor Conley than could have possibly in reality existed if it was just one bullet. Couldn't have done all the damage to the JFK. And also the changing of the brain. And uh, we've gone through all this in great detail. That's why I did the 67 programs. But why? Because John F. Kennedy was no better than Bill Clinton or uh, Barack Obama. He was a corporate Democrat. He was uh, an elitist. He gave great insight. But you have to look. He's the one who caused the Diem brothers to be assassinated. He's the one who doubled down and got us into Vietnam heavy instead of getting us out. It was only his after his assassination that his brother clearly had a change in consciousness and went over to the populist side. He went into Appalachia. He started going into Detroit. He went to where the poor people were, and he was going to go after Lyndon Johnson. And there's a great deal of evidence that Johnson was associated with the Hunt, uh, uh, the great Hunt uh, uh, family. And uh, at that time, the second or third wealthiest man in, in America of Hunt Foods. And, um, and his, JFK's mistress, mistress, who I later interviewed, said that he talked about how we got rid of that boy. Uh, anyhow, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence about our uh, Lyndon Johnson and the people, the very radical right-wing patriotic people, very wealthy people that he was surrounded by. So had Robert Kennedy not run for president, and he would have beat Johnson, clearly. And it was because of that that Johnson saw that he couldn't get reelected because of the unpopularity of the war that he then voluntarily withdrew. But uh, RFK would have been the president. There is no question about that. And I believe at that point uh, he would have uh, caused all the people who were involved in his brother's assassination to be brought to dirty justice. 
and uh, because he was known when he was attorney general for running a lot of dirty, off-the-books uh, black op operations. So there's no question that he was going to seek vengeance, in my mind. And there's no question that he was also going populist, which would have made him absolutely a pariah to all the people who had once been there on the receiving end of, uh, of what their brother stood for. Your thoughts on that, and then tell us what you believe was behind the RFK assassination, or who, and then we're going to go from there to the JFK assassination. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more on, on virtually everything that you said. Um, one thing I, I want to point out, just for the sake of the discussion on conspiracy, coincidence, and all the rest of it, um, there's, a, there's a, a moment in time of the, of the Bobby Kennedy assassination that, to me, is a touchstone. Uh, again, another touchstone, and that is the dinner that Bobby Kennedy attended the night he was killed. He attended dinner at the Malibu Beach House of a Hollywood director, John Frankenheimer. Um, he, this, this guy directed the film The Manchurian Candidate. The Manchurian Candidate, as we all know, it was a film based on the novel by Richard Condon, which was about uh, an assassin who was programmed to assassinate by the Russians. So it was a Russian programmed assassin. Um, he, he came out with this film, but he first asked President Kennedy at the time if it was okay to release this film because of the, the political tensions between Russia and the United States at the time. And Kennedy gave him the go-ahead. Uh, the movie starred um, Frank Sinatra, Angela Lansbury. It was a, it was a very well-known film, very famous film. Kennedy becomes assassinated. President Kennedy's assassinated. And they pull, Frank and I pulls the film out of distribution immediately. He feels guilty. He feels that somehow, in some way, he had contributed to this assassination uh, in some sort of cosmic way. He pulls the film out of distribution. It wasn't seen for decades. Okay, but that night, in June of 68, there is now a dinner taking place at his home. And at his home is Bobby Kennedy. And at his home is Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. So Bobby Kennedy leaves the dinner, goes to the Ambassador Hotel. The primary takes place. He makes his famous speech, and he's assassinated. So there's Frankenheimer again, feeling that he has some cosmic connection to, to these assassinated uh, Kennedys. And then a year later, of course, Sharon Tate is murdered by the Manson family. Um, and then that whole thing starts. And then there's the connection, as you well know, uh, the alleged connection anyway with the process church of the final judgment. So you have uh, layers within layers of connections between political events, um, the motion picture industry, Hollywood in general. I mean, the idea of creating images, creating reality, manufacturing reality, and uh, cult activity. You know, occultists, uh, uh, groups of occultists. Um, you have the Sirhan connection on the other side. You have the Manson connection on one side. So you have... You have a lot Let's of influence. Let, hold on. We're going to sure. confuse people because, remember, we're talking about first RFK right now. Yes. And Siran Sirahan and Robert Barrett Kleiser, who did the best investigation I know of on this. Yes. Uh, and all of the Los Angeles Police Department that was totally corrupted at that time. And the FBI lying about the evidence that was given to it so it could have an official story that no one in the official media challenged. Who do you believe was behind, or do you have any proof of who may have been behind RFK's assassination? Well, of course, I don't have proof of who's behind the. I mean, if I had the proof, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. Um, but I think that 
what took place was that, um, generally speaking, uh, the, the person involved with the hypnosis, the person who actually did the hypnotizing of Sirhan was a contract agent for the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, I don't know if he took orders from the CIA to do this, if he did it on his own. Uh, which I doubt, but he had to be taking orders from somebody. He had to be working with someone to operate, to work his uh, his, his hypnotic magic on this young Palestinian. Uh, they picked a Palestinian specifically, I think, and, may, and gave him the gun and said, "Go and do this." So, if if the hypnotist is working for uh, one of the government agencies in doing this, he was probably isolated from the other people who were actually shooting at Bobby Kennedy at the Ambassador Hotel. I think that quite possibly Sirhan did not fire the kill shot, if he fired the shots at all. Um, I think that someone else did. I think your woman is, is, is probably correct. There were many more shots fired than what we've been told, in which case there were other shooters. And I think in the way this was compartmentalized is very similar to the way it was compartmentalized in Dallas in 63. You had people who did not know who the other operators were, they were not told. They were just told to be in a certain place, a certain time, and to do what they had to do. So I think we have to pull the threads back, find out more about Sir Han's uh, hypnotist, because he's going to lead us straight back as a contract agent to the Central Intelligence Agency, find out who he was dealing with, who the people he was working with, and I think you'll start to uncover the, uh, the, 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 the people who gave the orders. Also, we have to ask who had the greatest capacity to cover it up, who had that power, who had the power to adversely affect the, anything that was done by the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, who controlled the FBI with a brutal hand. It was the CIA. The CIA could have had control over the Secret Service, and they also were heavy players. So I believe that their, their fingerprints are all over both. Now, let's go back to JFK assassination. Tell us about Sirhan Sirhan, uh, excuse me, Jay, uh, uh, Harvey Oswald, Leah Harvey Oswald. Tell us who you believe, based upon your research, was behind the JFK assassination. Again, that's a difficult question to answer definitively. My research took place um, on the people who surrounded Oswald and who set him up for this uh to take the fall for the assassination. So my research for the Kennedy assassination begins, oddly enough, in the 1950s with a group called the Nine. And this was a strange little seance that took place in, in the Maine woods, in a cabin in Maine, run by a man called Andrea Puharich. Uh, Puharich was the man, many of you may remember, who discovered Uri Geller, the famous Israeli yeah, I, psychic. I knew him. Who, I had him on my radio show. You did? Okay. Yes. You had Geller, not Puharich. No, Puharich. You had Puharich. Outstanding. Yeah. Okay. Well, Puharich to me is is a connection that we have to look at. Um, Puharich conducted the seance, and the only people he invited to the seance were America's blue blood royalty. Hold on. Let's make sure it's the same one. The man I had on was a research scientist because I was doing psi research at the Institute of Applied Biology at the time, and it was quiet because I didn't want people thinking it was uh, crazy. And so on the one hand, I was doing anti-aging research. That's what I, you know, the world knew about, and people come and watch. But it was all the other psi research, and that's how I ended up getting connected with people who were looking at the process church and other um, uh, mind control agendas going on. That's how I found out about Ewan Cameron and uh, Alan Dulles 
and the work that Cameron was doing in, in Canada, I believe, uh, he was heading up one of the very first mind control programs up there and also using um, LSD um, or other uh, psychogenic uh, drugs. Is that the same person? He was a medical doctor? Yes, he was a medical doctor. He was heavily involved in psi research uh, since the 1950s. Yeah, he was, he, he was a major in the Army during the Cold War, uh, based at uh, Edgewood Arsenal uh, in the 1950s. So Do you know he was, when he died? He a, same guy? Yeah. Okay. Well, Andrea Poharich had conducted the seance in Maine, as I said, I think 1952-53. And at this seance uh, was Arthur Young, who I mentioned previously, the inventor of the Bell helicopter. His wife, Ruth Forbes Payne Young, um, she is part of the same Forbes family as John Kerry. They're, they're all the same. They're all related. Um, a DuPont and an Astor. They were all present at the seance. If you could imagine, you know, the, the, the heads of families uh, who had tremendous wealth and tremendous influence in American culture were attending this, a total of nine people. And at this seance, they allegedly, according to Paharich, in his writings, made connection with a extraterrestrial spacecraft of some kind uh, that had also nine inhabitants. So the nine inhabitants of the spacecraft essentially blessed the nine people at the seance and said, go out and, you know, uh, do our work for us. Uh, you're going to help initiate a new age in the human race, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, we start from there in the 1950s, and then we go to 1963. And in 1963, Arthur Young and Ruth Forbes Payne Young, two of the original nine, are related by marriage, I mean, uh, through in-laws, Ruth Payne in Texas, who is giving her home to Marina Oswald, and her children to stay while Lee Oswald gets his job in Dallas at the school book depository. So Ruth Payne now is going back and forth to, to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia, where Arthur Young and Ruth uh, are located. His son-in-law, Michael Payne, is working for Bell Helicopter, his boss, Walter Dornberger. So Michael Payne now and Ruth Payne are in Texas. I mean, this, this incestuous relationship is incredible around Lee Harvey Oswald. He didn't have a chance, you know. Uh, and that, that wasn't all because the man who introduced Lee Harvey Oswald to Ruth Payne was George de Morenschild, a name that many of your listeners probably know, uh, this bizarre uh, uh, nobleman from Europe who was involved in the oil industry, who what was revealed was a contract agent for the CIA. Uh, he was also in contact with the Nine. He had the, the address of uh, Wasson, the man who was discovering the magic mushrooms in Mexico, who was a, a friend of Puharich. He had his phone number and address in his book when he supposedly committed suicide to Morin Schultz, so he didn't have to give testimony to the House uh, Assassination Subcommittee. So you have all of these people connected with this one event run by Puharich in Maine in the 1950s, all surrounding Lee Harvey Oswald, who then goes and gets his job at the School Book Depository, and the rest is history. Well, now I remember where I first met Blaharch. If it's the same man, he was doing some psi research on Psychic Healer, the surgeon with the rusty knife in South America. Yes, and Same guy. And he, I had done all this research on, um, I had done the first clinical research in American history uh, showing that energy could be transferred. And I had selected 50 people, including the head of nursing at that time uh, from uh, New York University uh, School of Medicine and Nursing. And um, 
who would later found therapeutic touch based upon being able to prove that you could touch, in this case a mouse, and cure cancer six out of six times over a year, Dr. Dolores Krieger. And I had Olga Worrell. You've heard of Olga Worrell. And yes. Catherine Coleman, the great uh, uh, healer out of uh, Pennsylvania, I think out of Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. And uh, Harry Edwards in Europe. So this was a big deal. And people were there every day watching this. And all night I was doing all this research. And that's where he and I connected. And he wanted my thoughts about absentee healing. And, and, uh, and was it possible that a person could be channeled by a, a dead physician because the person he was with had no background in medicine, no background in surgery, and yet would take this rusty knife and, and go right in and know what was wrong with someone, take it out. And, uh, the, of course, the American media thought he was a quack and a nut job. But there was so much evidence, and so and Plaharch led a team down there. And then we, we started to talk all the time on these issues, and he came by the Institute. If it's the same person, that's how I met him. Well, that's definitely the same how, guy. Isn't that interesting how th paths cross? Well, one interesting thing about Puharich was, well, he was in the Army. He was a medical doctor, as you know. Uh, he worked at Edgewood Arsenal in the chemical biological weapons area. But his, his forte, he would give presentations to the military on how to weaponize ESP and, and telekinetic abilities. So... His, his interest in the early 1950s, because it was the Cold War, the Korean War uh, was at its height, he was trying to find ways to use these abilities, these innate human abilities, as weapons uh, to, to attack people, to, to confuse them, to even to kill them. So he was very interested in this, in this type of research in the 1950s, but was also interested in healing and in the possibilities of psychotronics and that sort of thing. So he was very much involved in that. We are definitely talking about the same person. Yeah, because I published my article in the Journal of uh, Psychotronics, and he also had an article in there also. So, yes. Interesting small world, isn't it? It sure now, is. So, so do you have anything more to add except that all around Lee Harvey Oswald, early on, were some of the most powerful, wealthy families, the Astors, the Vanderbilts, and others in America. And that story is never told when they're talking about Lee Harvey Oswald. It and, never is, no. And it, it, no no one ever talks about it. No one ever. I mean, it's in the Warren Commission. Ruth Payne, the woman in Texas who befriended the Oswalds, Ruth Payne is being questioned. Uh, during the Warren Commission by Alan Dulles. Uh, he's, he's there with the other panel, the Warren Commission panel. They're asking her lots of questions. When she gets to the point where she visited Arthur Young in, in Philadelphia, Dulles changes the subject. If you read that, uh, that transcript, it's amazing. She's getting close to saying something. Dulles steps in, changes the subject completely, and the whole thing goes off the rails, and they never go back to that again. And the reason, one of the reasons is, Dulles had a mistress, uh, Mary Bancroft. And Mary Bancroft was Ruth Forb Payne Young's, I have to give her the whole name, not to confuse with the other Ruth Payne, was Arthur Young's wife. Was, was, was their, they were best friends. Ruth Forbes Payne Young and Mary Bancroft were best friends. Alan Dulles would have known about the Arthur Young connection. He would have known about what Ruth Payne was about to reveal, and he stopped her from doing it. And that's why we don't know about it today. But if you go back and pull out those transcripts and start backtracking who all of these people are, you will be shocked 
at how these families, these wealthy, influential families, including the American intelligence uh, community, was around Oswald at the time. They all had connections to Lee Oswald, including, of course, that church that I belonged to back in, in 68, 69, which was a front for the FBI, as it later turned out. So you had, you had nothing but intelligence agencies and occult organizations and pseudo-religious organizations surrounding Oswald. Virtually everybody he knew was connected somehow to, to, to these kinds of operations. A very cl- close friend of mine for 25 years till he died of a stroke was one of the most powerful people in Hollywood and one of the wealthiest Americans of his time. And I had the opportunity as his friend to see his inner circle and the people came to see him and the problems they had uh, laying everything out. You'd never imagine uh, all that I've seen, all that I know. And I don't break confidences. When I'm told to keep a confidence, I do. But I'll tell you, an awful lot of the most powerful people in America are heavily into occult practices. And they're, they're also, if they're into corporate power, they want to protect their power. And so they know that they have the power through the people they put into office and that they control from the White House or other governmental agencies, what are called the, the left behinds, the people who, after administration, is out of power. They have thousands of people that they've appointed, hired in, who are there to look after their interest. Bush did it. Uh, Bush Sr. did it. Clinton did it. Bush Jr. did it. And I'm sure Obama would do it. Now what you see is you see the Koch brothers. The public didn't know about the Koch brothers, and you see how much power they have and how many think groups they own, and, and, um, and then their ideologies. And then you start seeing the privatization even now of the prison system in England so that the people would be arresting, uh, the people would be uh, actually uh, controlling the court system there, and the outcome of um, the prisoners would be a private corporation. Well, think of the power that it gives them over the entire judicial system. Enormous power. And that's what's happening. I'm very concerned about it. Anyhow, that's getting off track here for a moment. So let's go further. Let's talk about Richard Nixon's rise to power with the Dulles brothers and then Watergate. And then I, from there, I went to go to Jim Jones and the People's Temple. I'm going to go to Ronald Reagan, Pat Robinson, um, Son of Sam. Uh, the mass secret experiments to release deadly bacteria in Minnesota, and so on. Just bring us from there forward. Okay. Richard Nixon's case is also interesting because Nixon basically was a non-entity at the end of World War II. He served in the Navy, but for some reason he was singled out by Dulles. Um, We're not quite sure what the circumstances are. And all the biographies I've read of Nixon fail to make the connection, fail to to really explain what happened. Nixon was in charge of some office work in Washington, D.C. after the war's end. So he was going over paperwork. He is basically filing uh, what appear to be captured German documents of some kind. It's at that point that he, that Alan Dulles befriends Richard Nixon. Now, this is the most unlikely pairing you can imagine. Alan Dulles was rather urbane, sophisticated, uh, multilingual. He had this enormous intelligence background, uh, the legal background, all the rest of it, uh, career in intelligence during World War II. He helped orchestrate the surrender of the Nazis in Italy 
which is another whole story which we don't have time to get into, but um, it betrayed his anti-Semitic uh, uh, beliefs and, and feelings when he cut deals with the Nazis where the Jews were concerned. At any rate, so now suddenly uh, Nixon, a lowly officer, I don't think he had a, 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 anything higher than lieutenant, um, it was going through the paperwork, and Dulles pulls him out, basically, and says, listen, we're going to help you run for office. And the we, in quotes, happened to be oil people that Dulles was friendly with, other people like that. They were going to finance this virtual non-entity from California to, to run for uh, congressman, to run for senator, to run for governor, eventually to president. Dulles was behind. The, there was a pact made with this relative, relatively unknown, Richard Nixon, and this really successful power monger, Alan Dulles. They decide they're going to use Nixon. They're going to put him in place. And, and Nixon is going to run against Helen Gahagan Douglas on a red baiting uh, platform as well as a Jew baiting platform. Um, Nixon was would have these robocalls in those days, not really robocalls. They were, they were very tedious phone calls being made to supporters of Douglas, saying, "Don't you know that her husband is Jewish?" Melvin this is at Douglas, the end of World Melvin War II. We had just Academy Award winning actor. Yeah. Mervyn Douglas. And we had, just, we had just had World War II. We had the Holocaust. We knew about anti-Semitism. We knew what was going on. And yet Nixon could still use anti-Semitism as well as red baiting as an attack on his political opponent and be successful at it. And that's what, that was what was so uh, vital to the Dulles people. They wanted that power guy in California, which was tending to go left a little bit too much. They could keep California in the right-wing camp by putting a Nixon in charge and giving Nixon all the money and power that he needed to win that election. All right. Let's go from there to Ronald Reagan. Well, I have a... I have a you know a, a, my own unique um, sort of angle on Reagan, and that is, um, of course, Reagan came out of Hollywood, came out of California, came out of a, sort of a Nixon environment in California, uh, of right wing Hollywood people as opposed to to left wing Hollywood people. Um, from yes, okay. From my point of view, there was something more going on. Ronald Reagan and Jim Jones, who you mentioned. Both belong to the same religious denomination, the Disciples of Christ. Um, it's very funny to find these two individuals involved in the same church, but they were. And it's a very apocalyptic denomination. They believe in the end of days, uh, the rapture and all of this. Uh, Reagan, of course, famously believed in a lot of that stuff. Um, he believed that there was, you know, uh, an Armageddon coming. There was going to be, well, he referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. And he couched his phraseology in this sort of religious... Um, uh, a weirdly ideological, biblical end times kind of, of context as how he saw himself. And Jim Jones, of course, did the same. Jim Jones also uh, interpreted the world in terms of the end of days and Armageddon, a great conflagration that would take place, as did, of course, Charles Manson, another California uh, 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 resident who believed in the same thing and was actually trying to promote it. So you had um, an environment um, that was very conducive to this sort of very basic, uh, lowest common denominator kind of ideology. There's an us versus them. There's light versus darkness. Uh, whatever we do is okay. Whatever they do is evil. Uh, that has come to sort of dominate, you know, political discourse even today. You divide into teams. You divide into two opposing factions, and you're either with us or against us. And Reagan was very good at that. He started with, you know, with communists. 
and then uh, you know, Nixon had started, of course, with with communism and with the the leftists and all the people that he hated in the United States, including, of course, Jews. He had the strong anti-Semitic uh, 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 sentiment. Nixon did, and then Reagan goes and develops this into this anti-communist, anti-Soviet thing, um, and of course the Iran Contra affair, which again involved members of the weird churches that I that I talked about before. The church that involved David Ferry, uh, Jack Martin, Tommy Baumler, uh, all of these guys, uh, Fred Crisman at, at a certain point. Uh, all of these people were involved in a church that later re, re-emerged during the Iran-Contra hearings. You had a, a so-called priest making a, a speech in front of the, uh, the Senate subcommittee on this, uh, dressed as a, as a Catholic priest, claiming he's a member of an Orthodox church, which, as it turned out, was another manifestation of the same church that was run as an FBI front back in the 1960s. So you had a very strange nexus that has never been investigated. Uh, of the same churches involved with the Kennedy assassination, also involved with the Iran-Contra, involved with the Reagan and Nixon uh, administrations um, in a very uh, unique way, in a very subtle way. The church that I knew, the people that I knew were extremely right-wing, extremely um, anti-communist, I would say rabidly anti-communist, would do anything against a communist and for an anti-communist. So you had this us-versus-them mentality. It's this dualistic Manichaean uh, view of the of the world of reality, which says there's only angels and only demons. There's nothing in the middle. You cannot accept anything in the middle. There is no compromise possible. And that was Reagan. That was Nixon. Um, that was the Dulles brothers uh, and their view of the world. J- uh, John Foster Dulles as well as Alan Dulles. So you had this this and, this, Ken- and Kennedy. John F. Kennedy went against the Dulles brothers. Yes, we shouldn't forget that. No, he, he he fired Alan Dulles and threatened to scatter the CIA to the winds. I mean, yeah. uh, he was a, a, a he felt betrayed by Dulles over the Bay of Pigs. You know, uh, that whole story has not really come out to light yet either as to what really happened. Tell but for the, sure, tell, this this is an exclusive. Tell us the truth about what happened at the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy had never authorized the Bay of Pigs invasion. This is an important historical point. It has to be drummed into into people. They have to understand this, that when the Bay of Pigs invasion was taking place, the CIA felt they would authorize the invasion. And if the invasion was underway, Kennedy would have no choice but to authorize the airstrikes and the air support that the CIA needed to pull off that invasion. Kennedy was informed about the invasion in the middle of the night. He was at some function. He was told this was taking place. He went totally livid over this. He refused to send in the planes, and then he called Alan Dulles on the carpet. This is what really happened. There's, there's a, a narrative about this that everybody believes they think they know what happened, that Kennedy got cold feet, that he okayed the invasion and refused to give the air support. Kennedy never authorized that invasion. He never did. You know, he discussed it. He talked about it. He never authorized it. CIA did that on their own. Now let's bring it up to date. Pat Robertson, his real agenda, and also the mass secret experiments to release deadly bacteria in Minnesota. Wow. Okay. Uh, Pat Robertson. Um, Pat Robertson's relationships with foreign dictators has been the most troubling aspect of of Robertson and the 700 Club that I can think of. I know 
Uh, there's a lot of reasons not to like Pat Robertson or to to disagree with Pat Robertson's biblical take on world events. But in actuality, in the in the real world of Pat Robertson's um, operations in Africa and in Latin America, Robertson has always sided with the dictators. We have just now uh, convicted Charles Taylor of Liberia for the kinds of war crimes that he committed during his regime. Charles Taylor was a friend of Pat Robertson and Pat Robertson's organization, was supported by Pat Robertson. There's photographs of, of Taylor and Pat Robertson's people. I mean, he supported that. He supported the Iran-Contras. Robertson was everywhere. Where there, where there was a death squad or there was an anti-communist crusade, Pat Robertson was there. And at the same time, in Africa, he's sending in planes to help the needy of Africa. But what he's really doing is he's taking diamonds, blood diamonds, conflict diamonds, out of Africa and back to the United States. There was no medicine going to those poor people in Africa. There were missionaries with Bibles, and there were empty boxes to be filled with the diamonds. This is what this was, this was Operation Blessing, what that was all about. It was covered in the Atlantic Monthly at the time this was, was happening. Nobody talked about it. Nobody called Robertson on, on the carpet for this. Robertson has, has maintained these relationships as in, for his entire life that I can find. So I have... Uh, I, I am very disturbed by this, this, this institutionalized Christianity that Robertson represents, which is really involved with some of the bloodiest episodes of world history over the last 30, 40 years. It's extremely disturbing, and people should really pay attention to where Robertson puts his money, where he gets his money from, how, his, his, how he makes money, uh, what people he gets involved with, what political organizations he's involved with and has been involved with over the years, especially overseas. It's, it's very disturbing. Some of the worst war criminals you know, after the World War II were, you know, were supported by Robertson and his people. Okay, we have four, about 13 minutes left. I want to get into things you may or may not have any knowledge of or evidence on. Today, there is no question that the Bilderberg Group is one of the most powerful groups on the planet. And Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, both in Washington at the Marriott Hotel, went in on the same night to meet with him, refused to ever say a word about it. And uh, uh, yet here's all the media, uh, top media, top people in all fields, who are members. What do you know about the Bilderberg Group? And we have Alex Jones to thank for the information that we do have, but what we have is not enough to show that they've engaged in criminal activity, but power, uh, power activity, absolutely. Tell us about Bilderberg, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, or any groups, the Business Roundtable, that have exerted unusual power in the current society we live in well the the history of the Bilderbergers is, is very very interesting I mean we're talking about people who were uh, some of the, the original members were members of American intelligence uh, the psychological warfare operations uh, for the Eisenhower administration uh, for the loose uh, people at time life they were involved with Bilderbergers um, including of course a very famous former Nazi I talk about him briefly in Ratline uh, he was a Nazi who managed to escape uh, prosecution. He went abroad. He was one of the founding members of the Bilderbergers. The Bilderberger uh, situation is, is, is disturbing to me, of course, because it does represent an accumulation of power uh, without reference to the niceties of, you know, 
concepts like democracy or the constitution, our constitution or anything else. Anytime you have a secret society uh, in the United States like that, that involves politicians, that involves uh, wealthy people, uh, there's something intrinsically dangerous about it. Jack Kennedy uh, warned us about it himself, about the existence of secret societies in the United States. And I think that probably the most famous one, the one that's been brooded about the most, is, of course, Skull and Bones. Now, Skull and Bones is just, a, you might say, a university fraternity. What's the big deal? Except that, you know, during the, the, the presidential campaign between George Bush and uh, John Kerry, we had two people who both were members of Skull and Bones at Yale University. They had both been members. They both refused to talk about their membership in that society or to describe it in any way. Um, I find that to be uh, reprehensible. We're electing people to the most powerful office in the land. Some would say the most powerful office in the world. And they belong to secret societies that we're not allowed to know about this. Uh, just the fact of that alone is disturbing. I don't care if all they're doing is drinking beer and eating hot dogs. The idea is we need to know what this is all about. How does this affect their decision making? What allegiances do they have? What other loyalties do they have? that are not to the Constitution or not to the United States in general? Do they have loyalties or allegiances to things other than what they should be loyal to as people who take an oath to uphold the Constitution? So we need to know these things. And as I started to research Skull and Bones, and there's a number of books on Skull and Bones that are very useful, put out by Trine Day, and you can find them uh, everywhere. They can tell a lot of different detailed information about them. But what disturbed me was that during the, the, the last George W. Bush presidency, we had various members of Skull and Bones in positions of power in the intelligence community. If you realize they only bring in 16 people per year into Skull and Bones, 16, that's the maximum. In 100 years, what does that mean? 1,600 people in 100 years could be members of Skull and Bones. That's 0.00001% of the American population. And yet you have so many Skull and Bones members in positions of power and authority. The, the disturbing fact of that is, how is it possible? The as, odds against that are astronomical. So obviously it is the result of cooperation. It is the result of people with loyalties to each other, allegiances to each other. And that's the, that's the society we know about, Skull and Bones. You throw in Bilderbergers on top of that and some of the other secret organizations that no one is allowed to talk about, and you have the evidence, the spoor of a kind of multinational um, organizations, networks, that they feel we as the people are just not adult enough to know about. Finally, today we looked into an Army manual it's entitled Internment and Resettlement Operations FM 3-39-40 that outlines strategies for re-education camps. Certainly that's shades of the Cold War, mind control, intelligence, and gulags in the old Soviet Union, and the re-education prisons in China and Vietnam. Do you know anything about the Army Manual Internment and resettlement operations, and they're going after all activists and anyone who challenges corporate America and challenges their control or government. Well, let me let me say what I've said um, a few times in the past in some of the books I've written and some of the, the, the talks that I've given. 9-11, September 11, 2001, was our Reichstag fire. 
this was if if those of you who remember uh, World War well not World War Two before World War Two Hitler came to power in 1933 in Germany. He was trying to consolidate his power over the German people. There was a fire at the Reichstag, which is the German Parliament. Uh, he blamed the the fire that fire had been set by communists. So he told the German people, I'm going to protect you from the communists. You have to give me all authority, complete authority over the country, and I will protect you from these communists who tried to burn down the Reichstag. And, of course, he got the, the support that he needed. He was named the Fuhrer. He became the ultimate, the, the only ruler of Germany at the time. Well, we had a Reichstag fire on September 11, 2001. Were we attacked? Sure. I mean, the buildings went down. We know. We saw it. We watched it happen. Did, these, did people die? Of course they did. But what was the end result of this? Some people say it was a conspiracy to bring down the towers. I've heard all of this. Without getting into that, I will say what is important for us to realize is that it was used the same way Hitler used the Reichstag fire. It was used to take liberty and power away from the people. The Patriot Act is the most notorious example of this. We willingly gave up our rights of habeas corpus and a lot of other rights, our right to privacy, our right to not to be spied upon, our uh, right not to be investigated. Even our library books can, are open to, 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 to investigation by intelligence agencies. We gave this away because of 9-11. We, they used fear. Fear was used to get uh, concessions from the American people, and we're still too afraid to get those concessions back. Every six months or so, every year or so, another so-called terrorist plot is uncovered uh, to make us feel that we need to keep all of these quote-unquote safeguards in place. That's why you take off your shoes at the airport. You know, um, I'm, I'm waiting for the day as I've said a number of times, when, you know, another would-be terrorist tries to use a, uh, uh, an explosive device uh, stuck uh, up inside his body, where they have to do an anal cavity search every time you get on a plane uh, just to protect us from terrorists. I mean, it's, getting, it's going to be to that point. We're willingly giving up these, these rights, these privileges. We're bending the Constitution so, so tightly it's going to break if we keep doing this. If we have to do all of this to protect our country... If, it, if protecting our country is more important than protecting the ideals on which this country was based, then I think we have our priorities wrong. Peter, thank you very much for your insights. Um, we will look forward to having you back because there's still other issues. I did not have a chance, as many as we did do. Uh, there are more to come. Peter Lavenda uh, is my guest, and um, his book, Ratline, Soviet spies, Nazi priests, and the disappearance of Adolf Hitler. Uh, very important. And uh, all the best to you, Peter. Thank you very much. I'm Gary Nall. This has been the Progressive Commentary Hour, hitting on a lot of topics. Hope you've enjoyed it. Look forward to sharing more on our next program. Have a nice day, everyone.